Most of us are aware, we understand the difference between a gift and our wages, don't we? Isn't there a vast difference between a gift and wages? Yeah. Picture yourself now, at the end of the week or the end of the month or whenever you normally collect your salary, your wages, your commissions, however you are supported. Imagine yourself going to the boss or going to the cashier or wherever you get paid and they present you, they say, we have this gift for you. And you've worked your little tail off all week or all month to earn this and they tell you it's a gift to you. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. These are my wages, I earned these, I deserve this. True? How are you gonna feel if they pass it off to you as a gift? Probably not very pleased, huh? They're gonna to wanna to say, well, look at how gracious we are. How wonderful we are to you to give you this gift. And no recognition of your work and your efforts to generate this income. There's a vast difference between those two. But what if you went there and you had a, let's say you were a salesperson, you had a terrible week, you're on commission only, all right? No draw. You went to the pay window and they said, guess what? We have a tremendous gift for you. You had a lousy week in sales, but we're gonna pay you anyway. Now, how would you feel? I'd feel blessed. I'd say, are you kidding me, really? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Big difference between gift and wages, huh? Paul uses this very theme, we're gonna continue talking about the great Christian truth of salvation by faith. God justifies us. By faith, it's a free gift. It's not our wages, it's not what we've earned, it's not what we deserve. We go to the window of heaven and God says, I have a gift for you. You know, if a man was able to make his character such or accrue the amount of works necessary to satisfy God's demand for perfection, then he could go to the pay window at heaven, couldn't he? He could say, not, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He could say, let me in. I deserve it. I've earned it. Couldn't he? But you see, Paul wants us to understand, God wants us to understand, that it's a free gift. So that when we talk to other people, I was in the health club uh, this morning in the, in the, in the sauna. It was, it was real, real funny. One guy, there were four of us in there. One, the other guy, this other guy is a Christian, and he always comes in just about the time I'm leaving. And uh, he comes to hope on and off, and so we talk about spiritual things. Well, there were these two other guys sitting there. And he comes in, and he starts asking me about, um, about salvation. And I thought, Lord, is this a setup? <laughs> and so we just, as we talked back and forth, we let out the whole plan of the gospel for these two guys sitting there listening. You know, we went through the whole deal about being a sinner, bound for hell, no hope, breaking the law, guilty before God. You know, and you, out of the corner of my eye, I'm watching these two guys. They're not budging a muscle. 
They're not moving an inch. They're just sitting there listening. And when Ken and I finished our conversation, we both left the sauna. <laughs> but the whole point of our discussion in there was that to emphasize and to reemphasize that it's a free gift of God. A free gift of God. Remember a couple weeks ago when I shared with you, go find a, a sinner and practice on him? And when I emphasized the real use of the law, that the law really is used to convict us of sin, to convict a man or a woman, a person of, of their sin, of their real guilt before God. And once they're convicted, once they see their guilt, they're confronted with it, then and only then can you really present them with the good news. Only then can you really help them understand that salvation now is a free gift. You can't tell them that beforehand because they won't appreciate a free gift unless they've, they've been confronted with having to work for it. Does, it. does that make sense to you? And so when we share, and, and part of the reason that Paul so emphasizes this truth, and most of us are aware that salvation is a free gift, but can we articulate it to somebody else? Can we follow Paul's arguments and, and describe to someone else, as Paul describes to us in these chapters and these passages in Romans, why and how salvation is a free gift? And so that's why we're spending uh, this time on this, because it's so essential that we be able to follow his arguments. He starts off in the fifth ver fourth verse, his fourth chapter. He says, now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him, to him as a gift. His wages don't come to him as a gift when he's working. He says, but it is an obligation. He deserves them. His employer is obligated to pay him when he works. They've struck a deal. You work so many hours at such and such a rate, I pay you. And when the person has done that and they go to be paid, the employer is absolutely obligated to pay him. Isn't that true? He can't call it a gift. And Paul is calling salvation a free gift. The emphasis here is not that man can develop such a character or can amass so many good works so as to credit himself to God that when he gets to heaven he says, you ought to let me in because I've done all this and I have this great character because I've made myself perfect. We know by experience that we can't do that. We also know by the word of God that we can't do that. Why? Because the Bible tells us that everyone is sinned, that every man has fallen short of God's glory. Every man has fallen short of God's standard of his need for perfection. And so we're all in the same boat. Now that's comforting to me. That's comforting to me to believe that every single person, no matter how big, how short, how stout, how thin, what color they are, how much money they have, what their educational background is, how cultured or uncultured they are, we're all in the same boat. Okay? Vitally important to, to recognize that. And so this person who goes there says, you can't say, you should let me in because I'm so good. The only reason to get in is because Jesus died for me and I put my faith in him. That's the only reason. It's the only way that a person is ever going to get into heaven. Now, God's remedy is not man's remedy. The Bible tells us that man has a dilemma, that man has, is diseased, he's sinful. 
And man is always trying to concoct, to develop his own remedies, his own solutions to his problems. And if you look around and you, you go to any bookstore, you go to the how-to section, you go to the um, self-help section, you go to the pop psychology section of any bookstore, go to Walden's, go to any of the bookstores, and you see the wall filled with books. How to win over depression. How to make yourself better. Looking out for number one. Be cool. You know. <laughs> How to get a date and two easy lessons. I just, there's all kinds of self-help books, okay? So man is always trying to figure out his own remedy. And Paul is trying to say, it's not man's remedy, it's God's remedy. God is the solution. Christ is the solution to man's problems. No other person. To illustrate that, I want you to look with me into um, uh, Numbers, the 21st chapter. Now that's way back in the front of the Bible. This is a marvelous account. The 21st chapter of Numbers. Now Jesus refers to this account. If you look at the third chapter of John's Gospel, you remember in his discourse with Nicodemus? And Nicodemus comes to him and says, you know, we know you're from God because you could not do the miracles you're doing. And Jesus says, well, Nick, you know, you've got to be born again. Just says it straight out to him. And Nicodemus, remember, his heart has already been prepared. He's been confronted by the law. He's hungry for the Messiah. He knows he needs salvation, and he's wondering if Jesus is the Savior. And so Jesus tells him straight out, gives him the good news. He says, believe in me. Now, in their discourse, Jesus turns his attention to a, an account in the life of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after they had left Egypt. Moses was leading them around. And the account Jesus refers to, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he says if he's lifted up, he'll draw all men to him. Now he's talking about Son of Man is a messianic title that all the Jews would recognize, especially Nicodemus. It comes out of the book of Daniel. And he's describing himself. And he's saying, in effect, Nicodemus, yes. The serpent lifted up in the wilderness was a solution, was a remedy from God to Israel at a particularly distressing time in their history. And we're going to look at that. And that serpent pointed to Christ when he was lifted up on the cross. He would become the remedy for man's dilemma from God. Now there's some fascinating things in this passage. Look at the numbers with me. In uh, chapter 21, starting verse 4. They, meaning the Israelites, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. Not a very good thing to do. Okay, to speak against God and against um, his anointed. And said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now, they couldn't stand the manna. Okay? Manna was heavenly food. I don't know what it tastes like. Someone described it as mashed bananas. I doubt very seriously if that was what it was. 
But here they are, they're complaining. They're saying, God, we're not satisfied with you and what you choose to provide for us. We don't trust you and we don't like you. Whoa. Okay, let's see what happens here. The Lord said, well, okay, if you guys aren't happy, well, I understand. No? <laughs> Look what he says. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Now, in some of the other versions, they're called fiery serpents, okay? He sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. Now, that wasn't very nice of God, was it? Was that thoughtful of him? I'm being funny. <laughs> You know, I really have to watch myself because sometimes I make a little joke and someone takes it seriously and I get a letter and they're just really <laughs> don't know what to do with it. So The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now, wait a minute. You're an average, everyday Israelite. You're out there, and there's these snakes all over, and you're dancing around them, trying to keep from getting bit. Your neighbor gets bit over here, someone gets bit over there. They start writhing in pain. They die. And you're running around going, whoa! Finally, you go to Moses and say, Moses, we were wrong. Would you pray and ask God to help? Moses prays. He says, okay, here's God's solution. Here's God's remedy. I'm going to make this snake. I'm going to put it on a pole. And all you guys have to do is just look at the snake. Just look at it. Sure. Sure, Moses. Now, what are some of the things that some of those people may probably have been tempted to do? I've listed a few of them for you in your notes. Do you think that some of these guys ran into their tents and tried to brew up some concoction? You know, some medicine, some poultice, something to put on the snake bite to suck out the poison? Probably. Is that what they were told to do? When they were bitten, were they told was the remedy for them to seek out some human solution? Take some penicillin and you'll be okay? No, that wasn't the solution, was it? But a lot of people would resort to that, wouldn't they? Okay. Let me ask you another question. Were they commanded to help one another? Were they, did they develop a social agency? Now, I have no problem with social agencies and being involved and helping, but was that the command? Was that the direction? Run to each other and help each other, and if you've been bitten, and if you help this guy over here, it'll go well with you. You see the kind of works mentality that people get involved in? If I give my life to serving the poor without trusting in Christ, it avails me nothing. It avails me nothing. If I do all my life in volunteer work, if I serve in hospitals, if I feed the poor, if I care for the sick, but I don't trust in Christ, and all of it is an effort on my part 
to establish my own self-righteousness so that though I may be snake bit, that somehow this will all balance out and overbalance my being snake bit, and then I can get to heaven. No, the command was not to go off and start a, a social relief agency to help all these people who are snake bit and set up a hospital. Although, if you look into history, all, all of the great social institutions in terms of hospitals and asylums and uh, work for the poor, many, many, many of them historically have been started out of strong Christian works by people who were so committed to Christ. This whole China Inland Mission that we've talked about in this book of the month, Hudson Taylor, came about only because this man had given, him, given his life to Christ and literally millions of Chinese got saved as a result. But God doesn't tell him to do that. He doesn't tell him to fight off the serpents. There's no direction by Moses. Fight them. Stamp them out. Start a society for the eradication of fiery serpents. <laughs> Have big fundraising drives. Bring in all the celebrities to stamp out the fiery serpents, which are sent as judgment. You see. Now again, I have no problem with people wanting to help other people. But unless Christ is first, unless he is seen as the solution, then all the stuff that people want to do is not going to help, not going to do one thing, is it? Amen. So they don't set up a society. They don't go around collecting money. They don't have presidents and secretaries and, and have this big organization to stamp out the serpents. Not at all. They're told, they're not even told to pray to the serpent on the pole. Moses doesn't come to him and say, now look it, I'm going to make the serpent, I'll hold it up here, and you pray to it. Right? They're not even told to come and make offerings to it. Incidentally, after the whole episode, somebody made off with this thing and kept it in his tent. And years and years later, I think it's under Hezekiah's rule that the thing pops up again and it's just, they destroy it. Someone kept it as a souvenir, <laughs> as a relic to be venerated. You see? You see how people seek out their own human remedies? What's God's remedy? Look at it. The very act of looking is an act of faith, isn't it? The very act of looking is an act of faith. It's a submission to God's remedy. And when you look, you'll be healed. Now, why does Jesus allude to that? Because he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that all men who look to him, what, though they be snake bit, though they be infected with sin, though they be dying, they put their trust in him, lifted up on a pole, that they wouldn't die. Do you see God's remedy? You see how it's a gift? It's nothing that man can do, nothing that any one of us can generate on our own in spite of all of our altruistic motives. It's a gift from God. It's something that God does. He gives us his solution, his remedy. He says, trust me. Trust me that you're sick. Trust me that you're dying. Trust me that you have this deadly disease. And I have the solution if you'll just put your faith in my solution. What's his solution? Jesus. Jesus. Now, what about works? The question always comes up when we talk about salvation by faith and we stress salvation by faith. The question always comes up 
But there's this passage over in James, you see. Turn with me to the second chapter of James, and I want to show you how James is really saying the same thing that Paul says about salvation by faith. James, the second chapter. Verse 14. Now read this along with me. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. In other words, what all he's saying here is this, if you really truly believe in Christ, if you've been born again, if you've been transformed, your life will reflect it by what you do. You have become a transformed person. You can't not be involved. You find yourself reaching out because you've got, been given a brand new transformed nature. Now, James is addressing people in the church there in Jerusalem who are professing to be believers. And their great problem is intellectual believism. They're saying, in effect, well, I believe, I have faith, and after all, you are saved by faith, and it really doesn't matter what you do. All you have to do is believe, because you're, you're saved when you believe. Now, that's true, isn't it? Except one thing. It does matter what you do. Because the person who is truly saved, the person who really does believe, first of all, has to believe that they're lost and they're a sinner. They have to see that. Because if they don't see that, there's no way that they can believe in Jesus as a solution for their dilemma. But once they do see that, and then they put their faith in Christ, there's no way that they can live their life doing what they please. There's no way that they can see somebody in need and not be moved by compassion to do something to meet that need. They can't just say, be warmed and fed, and pat them on the head and send them on their way. Because... They have God's life in them, and God's life is compassionate. God's life brings about restoration. And so he's saying, yes, you have faith, but your faith, if it doesn't have the works that follow, that prove it out, it's not faith. There is a place for working. There is a place for works. But the works are not for us to credit ourselves to God. They're not to earn something. They're not wages whereby God gives us Salvation. They come as a result of having and possessing true saving faith. Verse 20, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham? Oh, it's, I'm sorry, I missed this section here. Back up to me. Back up with me to the um, uh, latter part of verse 18. It says, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. So he's addressing just their intellectual believism. You believe there's God? Okay, great. The demons believe too. They know there's a God. Are they saved? No. 
They shudder. Their believing doesn't save them. He says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. It proved out the reality of his believing. The fact that he obeyed God. He did what God commanded him to do. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone? Now that's a problem verse for a lot of people. That a person is justified by what he does and not by his faith alone. All he's saying is that his works, the person's works, prove out the fact that he has true saving faith. Okay? Faith without works, he says, is dead. So there's a place for works. But the works do not earn us salvation. The works are the proof of our salvation. In the same way Rahab was not even uh, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So there is a place for works. But the works follow the faith. And they are a proof and an evidence of our faith. Um, would, so, would somebody open these doors back here, please, and open that door back there? Danny, would you make sure these doors are all open, please? Thank you. Now, he goes on and he says in verse 5, However, to the man who does not work, who does not work for wages, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Who are the only kind of people that God saves? He says right here. Wicked people. Isn't that exciting? God does not save nice people. He does not take nice people to heaven. Now that's alarming. Next time you, a person says to you, well, I'm a nice person, you can say, oh, wait a minute. It says right there that God does not save nice people. Well, what kind of people does he save? Wicked people. Now that person has a dilemma on their hands, don't they? They're a nice person, so they're out. <laughs> Aren't all people wicked? Yes. Now some of us are real nice on the outside, like, kind of like the Pharisees, right? But in our hearts, we're really, really wicked. We tried to do this a few months ago. I thought I suggested that we have the screen down all the way and, and each one of us parade up next to the screen. We, if we could fix this overhead view projector some so that each person could stand right in front of it and it could project right through us the thoughts of our heart onto the screen. I mean, just, just for today. I mean, you know, forget about the week. Just the day's thoughts. The day's attitudes. I think that pretty substantially we could find out that most all of us, indeed all of us, are truly wicked. Would you agree with me? So therefore, every person becomes a candidate for God to save them. Isn't that thrilling? Isn't that tremendous? Absolutely tremendous. Unfortunately, we can't fix that machine, and I doubt if we get very many volunteers. Yeah, I'd go first, sure. Oh, yeah, no problem. I'm as wicked as they come. 
But you see, people don't describe themselves as wicked, do they? They describe themselves as nice people. Okay. Even the gross sinner don't, doesn't necessarily describe himself as wicked. But the scriptures do. The scriptures say man is sinful and falls short of the glory of God. Paul says that there's no difference. All men have sinned. Everybody. Well, how wicked are we? Pretty darn wicked. And we're wicked from three perspectives. We're wicked from our heritage. We're descended from wicked people. All of us have ancestors, have relatives, have cousins and aunts and uncles and parents who too are sinners. Two very distinct and noted examples Jesus points out, one in the Gospel of Matthew and one in the Gospel of John. He tells the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, in effect, you guys are really, really wicked. In the passage in Matthew, he confronts them and tells them that their ancestors, their forefathers, killed the prophets. And they are getting ready to do the same thing, kill him. And if that wasn't bad enough, then he says over in the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter, he says, when they're claiming that their forefather is Abraham and they're claiming to be righteous in Abraham because they're Jews, he says, you are not Abraham's children. You are of your father the devil, which of course sat real well with them. They really enjoyed hearing that. <laughs> but you see, by heritage, heritage, we are wicked. There's not one of us who's descended from a pure line. We're wicked in our birth. David says in Psalm 51 that he was a sinner from birth. That even from conception he was a sinner. Now some people twist that verse and they, they say, you see, sexual intercourse is wicked and it's evil and uh, sinful. No, it, it was given by God. It's a very beautiful gift from God for married people. But David understood the depth of his sin, even from his conception, let alone his birth, he was conceived sinful. And he was born a sinner. He didn't become a sinner later. He was born a sinner, just as all of us. And lastly, we're wicked in our choices. Isaiah tells us that we, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has, makes choices every day to go astray, to go astray from God's design, from his plan, from what he wants. And so you see that... Do you know that our name is in Scripture? Each one of us, we're named in Scripture. We're all called poor, lost sinners. Did you know that? You know what Jesus says? He says in Luke, the fourth chapter, that he's been anointed to come and preach the gospel to the poor. And then he says over in the 19th chapter of Luke, the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. 
And then finally in Matthew, the ninth chapter, he says, I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. A wicked person is a poor, lost sinner. That's how we're described. We're poor. We're lost. We're sinners, each and every one. We have nothing to commend ourselves. There's no way that we can earn heaven. No way that we can manifest such a character to stand before God and say, God, you're lucky to get me. No way. We're all sinners. Everybody comes the same way. In the 20th chapter of Matthew, is one of my favorite parables. You're probably very, very familiar with it. I just want to read it to you. Jesus teaches, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. And he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired at about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. Isn't that exciting? They worked one hour. They got a full day's wage for one hour's work. And so when those who came, who were hired first, when they came, they expected to receive more. Ooh, all right. See what those guys got? They only worked an hour, and they got a denarius. We are really going to score. Well, but each one of them also received a denarius, and when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. And these men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Everybody comes on the same basis. Everybody gets the same gift. There's no difference if you're an Apostle Paul or if you're a thief on the cross. You get the same gift, the same basis. If you've been working for years in the church, you ought to rejoice that you're working because Jesus saved you, not that you're working for salvation. And when someone else comes along and the Lord comes back, he takes this new person and stalls them in the kingdom right next to you. And you've worked all these years. You have no basis to say, wait a minute, I worked all these years for you. You see? Salvation is by faith. Everybody comes on the same basis. There is no difference. All men are sinners. All men are wicked. And God saves them all when they put their faith in Jesus. No other basis. Paul finishes up in the sixth verse. He says, David says the same thing. 
when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes from David in the 32nd Psalm. Now listen to what David has to say. David understood this. David understood that forgiveness, that righteousness, that salvation was all by faith. He knew there was no way he could earn it. He knew there was no way he deserved it. Listen to David's words. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven. And in the Greek, the word blessed there is plural. Blessednesses. Heaps of blessings. Mountains of blessings. To those whose transgressions are forgiven. Whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. The sin that you committed today, the transgression that we committed today, that we did today, the violation against God's law today, God has already forgotten it. And you know when God forgot it? 2,000 years ago. The sin that we did today, it's not credited to our account. You know whose account it's been credited to? Christ on the cross. Do you mean, do you mean that, that I, I sassed my mom today and, or I had an evil thought or I lusted or I stole or I did something wrong today and, and I've been carrying this guilt with me all day. I confess my sin, but I still think God, God never even recounted it. He never wrote it down any place. He never wrote it down any place. He never wrote it down any place. You find that hard to believe? That's what the Bible says. Our sins are forgiven. Past, present, even the ones you're going to commit tomorrow are already forgiven. Well, why does the Bible say that I should confess them? <laughs> because you need to come into grips and come to come to uh, relationship with that forgiveness. As long as you ignore them, as long as you commit them, as long as you violate the law and you just kind of write it off and say it doesn't matter, you're going to be miserable. How do I know that? Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm of David. Remember when David sinned against God by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then trying to set up Uriah to pretend like he was the father and then when he couldn't get that set up he had Uriah killed and he married Bathsheba? Did you know that he covered all that up? Covered it all up. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Blot them out. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You see, as long as I don't confess it, it's always there before me. It haunts me. God doesn't credit it to my account if I really put my faith in Jesus. But in order for me to interact with his forgiveness, I've got to say it. I've got to admit to it. I've got to confess it. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. 
Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful since the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Lead me, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Now, after he had sinned, when Nathan, the prophet, confronted him with sin, he finally confessed his sin. And this Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance. Now turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 follows right on after this chronologically, not necessarily numerically in the Psalms. Now listen to David. And this is where Paul quotes from in the fourth chapter of Romans. He's cried out. He said, God, forgive me. Cleanse me. You'll notice that, that David wasn't appealing to anything he could do to gain God's forgiveness and cleansing, right? And then he says, if, when you've done this, then I will speak of you and I will teach people about you. Now look what he says. Verse, chapter, uh, Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. Now who is he talking about? Oh wow, is he blessed? Is he filled with joy? Yeah, why? Because he's come in contact with God's forgiveness. Blessed is he. Happy is the man who God has forgiven. Whose sins are covered, blotted out, obliterated, no longer there. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now look at this, verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, the, through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I was miserable. I couldn't stand myself. Your conviction was upon me. As long as I covered it up myself. And don't men try to cover up their sins? Right? I mean, that's our natural tendency is to cover them up, ignore them, pretend like they're not there. When we can just say, God, you cover them up. You blot them out. And when we blot them out, when we try to cover them up, do we experience joy, blessedness, mountains of happiness in our life? No, it's mountains of misery. People are sick today. Physically, emotionally, psychologically sick. Why? Because they've blotted out and covered up year after year of sin. Because they have only one view that they have to earn their way to God and they can't do it. And they need to bring the good news to them. Our hospitals are full of people who are sick with anxiety. I talked to a young man who was in a mental institution from a wealthy family, had lots of money, young, young man, a brand new car, all the money he wanted, massive estate that he lived on with his family, everything, everything he could materially want. 
But he was empty inside. Absolutely empty. He went to his father and he said, Dad, would you help me? And his dad was just blitzed on alcohol. He looked at his son and he says, I, he says, you got everything you want. What more could you use? You're, you must be sick. His mother insisted he was sick. Emotionally. Took him to the doctor. They could find nothing wrong with him physically. They had him institutionalized. Before he went to the institution, he went to a church. He sat in the back. He listened to the, what went on. And he came forward and he went to the pastor. And he said, Pastor, help me. I don't know what to do with myself. My life's a mess. I'm empty. I'm lonely. I'm hurting. The pastor said, fill out this card. He didn't even pray with him. They didn't have a prayer room. <laughs> Finally, they had him convinced that he was, he was mentally gone. They took him and put him in a mental institution. Happened to be a Catholic one. They drugged him. The doctor came in, did all these tests, took all these tests. The doctor said, we can't find anything wrong with you. Take four of these pills every four hours, you'll be fine. He spent the next weeks drugged out of his mind. They let him out of his room one day, and he was walking down the hall in the mental asylum, and he saw a crucifix on the wall. He ran over the crucifix, and he pulled it off the wall, and he looked at it. And he went further down the wall of hall, and he found another one. He pulled that one off and looked at it. He gathered about six of those. And like a little chipmunk, went back to his room and hibernated with all these little crucifixes. And the nuns came in, chased him down to get the crucifixes back. <laughs> but in the meantime, he looked at that person on the cross, and this word came into his mind. Jesus. Jesus. And he fell down on his face and he cried out, Jesus! Next day, the doctor came in to see him. He said, how are you feeling today? Much better, thank you. Uh-huh. And why are you much better? Jesus! He said, uh-oh. <laughs> take four more of these pills. He refused to take the pills. A few more days later, the doctor came back. He was fine. He let him out. Jesus healed this guy. You know what he healed? He healed up the emptiness in his life. The man came to a point where he realized that he was empty. There was no way he could fill the emptiness. He realized that he was anxious. He realized he was a sinner. He realized his life was going nowhere. He had all the material possessions in the world he could ever desire. He was going nuts. And nobody had any answers for him. Except he found a little crucifix on a wall in a building in an asylum. Jesus. And David, in this great 32nd Psalm, verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I didn't hide it anymore. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, do you know something? When the wicked get saved, when they understand that their sins have been blotted out, when they understand they're not guilty, they've been forgiven, when the joy of the Lord begins to fill their heart, you know what happens next? Songs come forward. Songs begin to come out of their mouth. Praise and worship. And they begin to say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, how much we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for David. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for Abraham. Thank you for all these examples that you you put forth in your word. Men who trusted you. Men who knew that they were sinners. Men who knew that they were lost. Men who were stubborn. Who were rebellious. Who were arrogant. Who were prideful. And yet, Lord, men who, when you called, put their trust in you. Lord, you forgave them their sins. You cleansed them of all their guilt and their anxieties. Lord, you've offered to do the same thing for each one of us. And all you say is, just trust me. God, the one thing you want us to do more than anything else is to believe you. Just to believe you. Believe what you say about us and believe what you say about the solution to our problems. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your great love for us. We truly sing songs of deliverance to you. We worship you from the bottom of our heart for this great gift of salvation you've given to us. Lord, we pray for any in our midst tonight who, who maybe for the first time have been forced to confront their own wickedness, their own ungodliness. Lord, for the, just for the purpose of getting them to see how much they need you. We've all been there. We've all understood that. And if there's anybody here tonight who's in a position, who's ready to exchange their wickedness their, their sin and their guilt for God's righteousness, for God's own goodness. If somehow, some way, God has spoken to your heart and conveyed to you that you indeed are a sinner, that you're lost, that you're condemned, that you violated God's law and you're guilty, if He's shown you that you can't cover it up anymore, you can't hide it, The solution is Jesus. You've been bitten by sin. And God wants to heal you. And all he's saying is just to look. Look at Jesus. As that young man in that mental hospital looked at Jesus on that cross and cried out to Jesus to save him. Nothing he could do, nothing the doctors could do. Took Jesus to save him and heal him. 
If you're ready to exchange your guilt and your sin and give it to Jesus and let Him wear it on that cross and let Him give you well-being and healing, let Him make you right with God, then I want to invite you to pray a prayer with me. Some of you may be ready tonight, some others not. But if you're ready to pray, if you're ready to give your life to the Lord, then I'd ask you to stand, and then we'll pray a short prayer. If there's anybody at all, just go ahead and stand. You can't stand unless you're absolutely convinced that you're lost, and there's no hope for you. If you're not convinced of that, don't stand. Don't just do this on a sentimental thing. Unless you know you're absolutely bound for hell. Is there anybody at all? Okay, Tom, good. Anybody else? The ice is broken, there's already one. Okay, let's pray. There's two. All right. Praise the Lord, brother. Why is it so hard, huh? Why is it so hard to admit we're sinners? Okay, let's pray. Make this your prayer. God, you've shown me very clearly that I am a sinner. You've shown me that I'm guilty. I'm guilty of violating your law, and I've ignored it. I've written it off. I've tried to treat it as inconsequential. But I see now that it's very consequential. And I see also now that there is a solution, that you'll blot out my sin, that you'll deal with it, that you'll forgive me, and you'll give me a new life, a life that I might live to glorify you. So, Lord, I cry out to you now. Jesus, forgive me. Cause me to be born again. Put your life in me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with the joy of knowing that I am forgiven. Mountains of happiness. That I might be freed from any guilt, the anxieties that have built up over the years, the fears that have developed. That I might be finally free from those things. I commit my life to you tonight. And I praise your holy name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Welcome to the family.